February 14, 2007. It's the Lot from Pedro Show.
Wood. Charge the power in the wood. started off with I want to talk about you John Coltrane live in Newport 1963 and then Touchwood by Migu now brother Matt's all jammed up so I'm all by myself here in my pad and Pedro but I got some help with this show first an interview from last week with Thurston Moore and then third hour something new to the show uh, a segment from a friend of mine in uh, England so First Thurston here. Oh yeah, it's Valentine's Day, so uh, let me say Happy Valentine to everyone. Here's Thurston. Go for it. Okay, I got one of these sucker... Sucker MCs. <laughs> Suction cup mics on the floor. Oh uh, yeah, That's, I'm doing something like that right now. I'm sort of transferring this, um, this woman's uh, cassette tapes to... Uh, digital by just sending them to my computer and grabbing them with the CD spin doctor. Oh, so, she has these, all these old cassettes from 78, like she's a, a teenager living in New York and she used to sort of tape gigs. Man, good stuff too, like total out of control contortions gigs and Johnny the Heartbreakers and now I'm oh. listening to one where it's her like having a conversation with Byron in 1978. In New York City? Yeah, you can hear Byron's voice. It sounds like a kid. <laughs> He's talking about like watching The Odd Couple and stuff like that. I remember meeting him in the early 80s. He moved yeah. out here. Uh, is that Heartbreakers with Richard Hale? No, it's not that early. So it's uh, Billy Raff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. Billy Raff. I wonder what he's doing now. But it's the best thing is about what's the, like the between song stuff. It's great. Oh, the banner. Yeah, the yeah, since it's really the ledge. 
She Good just turned night. it on and kept it going. Yeah. We can't wait to leave. Oh, you mean Johnny Thunders? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got stations on the cross. Him and Walter. All right. Waldo. Dueling. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about the all tomorrow's parties. What was that like for you? You curated well, you know, all tomorrow's parties, you know what it is, right? It's sort of like this guy in England who who uh, decided to do this festival once or twice a year where he would ask a uh, artist to curate it. So he'd ask a different band or a different musician or whatever to sort of pick all the bands, and then he'd go out and get them, you know? So it was kind of a cool thing. It was like it was sort of like a living mixtape, in a way, almost. And uh, he had, you know, Sonic Youth did the first one we did when we did it at UCLA campus. And the first one in the, in the, in the U.S., um, he had us curate it at UCLA. And that was a blast. I mean, that was years ago. That's we did another guy. one. Like, we did another one before or after that, or both, I mean, in uh, England. And he would sort of, he would um, rent out this off-season uh, beach resort, because you would do it in December. And um, so you'd have this whole sort of classic... UK kind of uh, beach resort where there would be uh, chalets that people could stay in and there would be sort of you know bumper car rides and, and these huge bingo parlors and stuff that had all kinds of games in them and, you know um, and it, it was kind of a blast but this one we just did he uh, I asked him if I could just do one myself because I, I really just didn't want to sort of um, have to do it as a as a uh, democratic thing anymore like you know uh, what bands do you want what bands do you want is, are you okay with this band I'm choosing blah 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 which is you know which is you know, I, don't, I don't mind but I sort of wanted to sort of have the whole enchilada and so I I uh, asked him if I could just do I want solo myself picking all the bands and uh, he he let me so you know um, it was totally cool it was at a new place in uh in england a different beach off-season beach resort i was told they were holiday camps holiday camps i guess what i mean they're holiday camps you know that one at ucla did you pick the stooges because that was the first time we played with scotty well yeah i mean it it wasn't even the stooges it was called ashton ashton mascus and watt yeah i'm sorry and uh you know that was sort of that yeah, that was the first time Scott played and uh, in that lineup. But, you know, that lineup was sort of like in this, it was sort of in this development at the time when, you know, it was one thing leading to another, you know. I mean, it all started when we, when Ron sort of connected with us uh, doing music for Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine movie. And they wanted Stooges songs. It was like, well, let's do them with Ron. That was to me was you know we in in uh, Jim Dunbar was sort of uh, a music consultant for the film to some degree as an advisor and uh, Don Fleming was involved so it was basically we just sort of reached out to you know our friends to play with Ron who we knew would be into it which meant you on bass meant you know we got Shelley on drums and and uh, me and Fleming on guitars and. And, and uh, Ashton, certainly on guitar, lead guitar, um, and he, uh, 
showed us the songs, which, yeah, everybody knows how to play Stooges songs, but nobody really knows how to play them the way Ron plays them. And that was, to me, was the most enlightening thing. It's like, all of a sudden, sitting across from Ron, showing the chord chords that I knew, but he showed me how he played them, and there was this real sort of subtle swing, and that was real distinct, it was real genuine to him. It's like, okay, anybody can play Stooges songs, but nobody can play them like this guy. So to me, it was like all of a sudden I, I was privy to the blueprint, and that was completely amazing for me. And uh, so I think Ron sort of recognized that we were all sort of like um, there as students, you know, and as students and aficionados, but, you know, we weren't just sort of uh, session musicians, like, you know, having some movie soundtrack gig. And everybody sort of gone. I think, and we had different uh, singers. We didn't know what was going to go on. So you know, I, mean, I sang a song. You sang a song. You even brought in a song. Uh, and pull on the pipe. Niagara, you know, his friend Niagara, you know, wrote a song. And, uh, we brought Mark Arman to sing a lot of the songs. I think Sean Lennon got involved and did something. And so there's all this material got generated and. And even Ron sang a song. That's right, Ron. You know, and he said it was like that was the first time I uh, I was ever asked to sing. Because I used to sing in choir. And that was really fascinating when he sang because he sort of tapped into this kind of like real primal, old school American rock and roll thing. Like he had sort of a Jerry Lee Lewis kind of uh, take on it. Which I remember like me and Fleming were kind of high-fiving each other like when he did his take. Like, yeah, this guy's kind of real deal. And, uh, kind of cool. So I think Ron sort of got uh, so interested in the fact that, um, you know, there's people like us who are really into the virtue of, like, the Stooges music. And I think, what happened after that? I mean, it's like all of a sudden, I mean, uh, Mask has got involved. Wild Rats, that thing was called. Who, who named that? Wild Rats, it was, it was the, the name Wild Rats uh, came from um, I think Fleming and Jim Dunbar because I think the name of Mick Ronson's band before Spiders of Mars was The Rats The Rats or something like that and so it was a play on that since the movie was dealing with the Bowie Iggy thing and so there's that and the Wild Rats I, I don't know and we spelled it with like W-Y-L D B E and R A T T Z or something like that. Totally. Uh, well, I can help you with the Mascus thing. You yeah. So where, how did Mascus come in? Because you started playing with Mascus and his group. Well, that sickness, right? And then you got really sick. Right. Well, th this is before that. Did I, you now? Wait a minute. Were you sick before this? Um, were you sick before or after the movie session? The Wild Rats, the movie stuff was, I think, in 97. Right. And I got sick in 2000. Okay. And almost died, and I couldn't play bass. They had tubes in me. And so when I went, I healed up enough to play again. I hadn't stopped since I was 13. So then I was lame. I couldn't had no rhythm, no strength, no dexterity, all, all atrophied. So I started playing Stooges songs to get strong. And I put together copy a cover band 
-hmm. with the two other porno guys, Perkins and Peter, porno for Pyros. And then I asked Jay and Murph to do some gigs on the East Coast with me at, at Brownies and Shitten Factory. And uh, Jay had just done this thing called Jay Mascus in the Fog, and he wanted to tour and asked me. And I thought the best way to get strong was just jump on the horse. So I went with him, and he told me it's hard for him to sing every night, so why don't you do some Stooges songs? I said, yeah. right. even a black fly, I think I've had it. Well, we get to Ann Arbor, and he goes, you know, Ronnie, why don't you call him up? So we're at the Blind Pig, and he comes on down. Jay goes, well, first you learn from, first you rip off a guy, and then you play with him. And then he asked him to come to England, and New York City at the Wetlands. We're playing with them, but it was you that got Scotty on board instead of George Burrs for that ATP thing. Yeah, but I forget how that. I forget how Scotty entered into it, though. He didn't even have a drum set. He was living in his camper. All right. I think I wanted. I think uh, I asked Ron. You know, I mean, I think I talked to Ron on the phone. He was like, "Yeah, Scotty would love to play." Or, this guy to play. I was like, that would be it. I mean, we have to do that. So, I mean, I think that's sort of what happened. Now, this one in December, you picked all the bands. This one in December, I picked all the bands, and um, yeah, that was pretty much it. Stooges. <laughs> I always for the Stooges. You know, I mean, they're like, they're like the best band, right? I mean, so they had to ask for the Stooges. Plus, they were into it, you know, they're like, man, if you get the Stooges, we'll be, that'll be really great for, you know, we need to get some really you know, big bands and all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, I don't really care, like, what a band profile is as far as, like, you know, sales, ticket sales or whatever, but I understand that if you all, if you want to make this thing work, you got to get people to come. At the same time, though, you got deep knowledge of music, so you had a lot of bands, probably not as big. Most of them weren't. Right, but very I mean, like big bands were, like, you guys, uh, the Melvins, um, Gang of Four, MC5, um, and, uh, you know, I don't know, Deerhoof, I don't know, I mean, um, and then I got Flipper, Flipper. Bruce Luce just wrote me. Yeah. He's got to have back surgery, he said. Oh, bummer. Do you like him with Nova Selich? Yeah, but, you know, I only saw a little bit of it. I didn't get to see him at a all. A lot of things I just saw a little bit of, because, you know, I'm running around and sort of, like, trying to deal with everything that was going on. But, you know, I saw a lot, but saw a little of a lot. Um, but, you know, I I, uh, I had a blast, like I tell you. And then, you know, the whole thing is, like, they put us in these chalets, and then like, everybody is sort of, like, sleeping in these chalets. And, you know, one or two of the of these chalets would become the party chalet. And so, you know, it would be, like, 600 dudes crammed into one place, just, like, <laughs> drinking beers and passing the pipe and, did you get Baracho? No. Did you ever throw a chair? No. Well, not then. After your, uh, after when I was coming. After a gig? To call get off chalet. stage and throw a chair? No, it was like outside your chalet. It's funny calling them that. <laughs> That's what they are, man. That's what they call them. Somebody was telling me you were throwing stuff and getting rowdy. I was? Yeah. No. I was in my chalet with Kim and John Sinclair. 
Oh yeah, I saw you and John. There. And uh, Sinclair stayed in our place, and we lied in bed, uh, smelling the smoke of John Sinclair coming out of the front room, and then listening to the madness and the chaos that was happening at these parties and these chalets. No, I, I was, I was, I acted, uh, I played it safe when I was there. Oh, what were you smelling, uh, Mota? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you're going to do some gigs next week, uh, Sonic Youth? Hell yeah. Take that on Times Day? Uh, um, yeah, we're starting, um, we're doing like a benefit for Coco's school that she goes to, which is a really good sort of progressive school called Greenfield Center School in Greenfield, Massachusetts. And, um, you know, they sort of depend on money from... Uh, you know, private individuals. So um, we did this once before a couple of years ago, so we're doing it again. We're going to play with this band that I like called Wooden Wand and a band called Awesome Color. Both bands have done record, uh, oh, I've done a record with Awesome Color and then I'm putting a record out by Wooden Wand on my label, Ecstatic Piece. And so we're doing that show Wednesday and then we sort of do, uh, yeah, we do like, you know, I think we're doing like New Haven, Boston, New York, some show up in uh, Burlington <laughs> and then we fly down and do two shows in Mexico one in Guadalajara one in Mexico City and then we book home and then uh, I'm going to sort of I'm sort of working on uh, recording solo joint stuff here with some like local dudes so I'll do that with John and Yellow who kind of worked with us on Rather Ripped and we'll do it up at Mascus's place Mascus is coming here this weekend to shoot a video for a song off his new Dinosaur Jr. record, you know, um, Matt Dillon is directing it, you know, Matt Dillon and his crew are coming up here and they're going to take over our, our basement and shoot Dinosaur Jr. In your pad. Yeah, totally, man. I've been in that basement. Yeah, they're shooting down there. you got to so, turn one part of it into a prac pad. Yeah, we're pracking down there. Oh, are you? Yeah, well, I am. <laughs> You know, the band sort of does it sometimes, too. I go, you know, because Kim and I can't go down to New York all the time. Right. Um, yeah, so. What about Ecstatic Peace? I remember, when did you start that? A long time ago, huh? Ecstatic Peace, I started that, like, in the early 80s. When I was living in New York, and I wanted to sort of, I don't know, I always sort of wanted to, like, put records out. I mean... I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to sort of put records out, make books. I was sort of just like wanted to do everything. Just wanted to be anything that was sort of like kind of about creative expression. I mean, to me, it was like I never sort of liked the whole idea of like you know you do what you do and you, and you do that and you don't do anything else kind of thing. I don't know. You're a guitar player. You play guitar. It's like fuck that. You know, I'll play tuba, play drums. I'll play it all. But you know, I focus on guitar. If I do anything better than anything else, I guess that um but i always like you know i mean being in new york it was there was a history of that anyway i mean that was like you know having sort of interdisciplinary kind of uh, activities is sort of that was sort of really sort of historical there you know i mean it's historical anywhere in like this sort of postmodern world but um i really sort of embraced that you know i mean i was just like i really liked the scene in New York when I moved there where people were playing not only in clubs but in, in 
like people's apartments and loft spaces and galleries. There was like the whole the art world was very sort of you know on top of the music world because everybody lived in the same same neighborhood. You know, so it wasn't there was no real separation there so much. And so there was a lot of sort of shared shared aesthetic. You know, and, Paul um, Rossler said the Screamers played a loft. Did you see that game? No, I missed the Screamers in the hair. They played CBGB too. Because there's a flyer that I've seen that the Screamers at CBGB. But you know, at that time, like the, if the Screamers had come that early, like nobody knew about them in, in New York unless you were sort of like you sort of knew. I mean, if you knew Tamada, you know, because he was like an artist, and so some artists knew him, kind of thing. Like, and they would go see his band. But. uh they also played this. I remember hearing about them playing at this one place. It's like you know the Screamers, but nobody was really sort of um, dealing with like what was coming from the West Coast so much. And it was just like I don't know why. I mean, even X came and played really early on before their album. And it's like if they played at Max's Kansas City or whatever. But you know the focus at that time was either like on your on your own hood in New York or London. You know. So everything else was just kind of like, you know, it, it didn't, nobody really gave it any value yet. That certainly changed. It certainly changed when like hardcore happened, and, certainly, and like even before that, like when, um, yeah, it was, well, it changed like when bands like, I know when the Dead Kennedys came out, they sort of were making kind of a lot of leeway and started getting people to sort of do stuff and or figure out what was going on in the West Coast. And then you know you had the magazines. Um, which was sort of intriguing, you know. You see, like Flipside, Slash, and uh, Search and Destroy. You know, Search and Destroy was really interesting because it was sort of like it had a real sort of art world kind of input. You know, and there was like all these pieces on, you know, Bruce Connor and William Burroughs. And stuff like that. What about No Magazine? No Magazine. That was a little more subterranean, even still. But I mean, I remember it. You know, Mike Jarosser was one of the editors of that when he was at. Minutemen had their first picture in it. Oh, really? But they were a lot about art, too. Yeah, well, they Big were art pictures. students. They were art students. There was a lot of art students in the old punk days. Well, because they, the, they were of that age, and that was like where, you know, that was where the the creative energy was. That was like, you know, I mean, Mike Durant told me, like, he was an art student with long hair, and he went to, like, the Elks Lodge gig, you know, and he, he was, like, being up close with his camera, like, trying to shoot. And he said that uh, Margot from the Go-Go's was, like, pulling his ponytail. And he turned around, and she's, just, like, looking at him, like, Cut your hair, hippie! And he said, like, he felt like that was, you know... You're talking most, about the middle class. Yeah. And, uh, was most, but he said that was the most significant, you know, it was a catalytic... I was thing. at that gig, the cops came, it was a bad scene. They right. cracked the singer's head, the girlfriend's head over the stick, on the steps. Yeah, we didn't have any of that out here. We didn't have cops coming and beating people up. We had fire marshals coming and closing down CBGBs because Billy Jimmy Carter was like, um, uh, was kind of in supposedly. Uh, what about that Pat Bad Brains used to, cut, to play? Shut down punk rock because it was a subversive element in youth culture. A A7 or something? Wasn't that a hard A7, yeah. yeah. That was like where the first like hardcore band started playing, like in the like 80, 79, 80, 81. It was like just this pad. It was sort of run. It was sort of a hippie. It was more like a hippie vibe in a way. But then, like that was where bands like the really little kids who were, you know, the first record they ever heard was Dead Kennedys, as opposed to you know, people our age who sort of 
Yeah, we were like 18 when punk rock started, so yeah. you know, we already had this history, and we were able to sort of dispose of the history and like, and like you know, totally grab this new ID. You know, it was fantastic. But also, there was all these kids like they didn't, they didn't have any history. All they had was sort of like, you know, they're 10 years old and they're just like listening to Dead Kennedys. That was like day one for them. That was always really interesting to me. That really sort of set hardcore apart. Like the the information was like was more pure, more raw, or something. You know, it's just it's just you're so young. So A7 kind of catered to that. And uh, I know I remember going there a few times, but I didn't really have that much interest in that stuff at that time because it sort of seemed like you know we already you know we already sort of went through this. You know, now we were getting into sort of territory that was kind of getting more interesting with public image and raincoats and sleds. No you know, wave. You know, no wave certainly, you know. Well no wave was pretty much kind of imploding at that point. Pretty much over with. And there was bands that were coming out of that that were still I mean DNA were still around. They were still really interesting and you know, um contortionist people you know uh Pat Place started a band called the uh, Bush Tetras, you know, who uh, for their first year or so were, you know, completely great. You know, they were just awesome. You know, Lydia started doing Eight-Eyed Spy, and they were like more sort of mu- like experimental musical uh, things. ESG. Yeah, ESG. Yeah, but hardcore was something else entirely. You know, it was like it was something really set apart. But I started getting into it when I started sign- like seeing the records that. Um, this place called the Rat Cage, which was sort of connected to A7 to somebody, right? And these kids started making records, and I just thought they looked really good because they were just sort of so, so cheap. You know, the Xerox Econo. sleeves, Econo Xerox sleeves folded in half with like you know, 20 songs on a seven inch. And I was like, and I just thought it like had a there was a certain energy to it that really drew me in. And then I listened to them, and they were and they were almost like they were amazing because there was there they were almost like, like like abstract noise in a way because of, <laughs> like it, 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 they were so primitive and, and uh, there was no frills. Did uh, you think was, SST was hardcore? SST? No, I thought Black Flag was, but SST was interesting because they uh, they sort of promoted this concept of real like sort of you know of of local localism in a way and uh i thought that was uh pretty fantastic you know that it was like okay this is this is our this is our neighborhood and these are the musicians and artists that are in it and all the music on sst was was kind of like it wasn't it wasn't really hardcore but it it was uh it was something a bit more sort of um oh here byron college just walked in was New Alliance a hardcore label? New Alliance. I, I, I don't think of you guys as a hardcore label, even though it was sort of in the context of uh, what was going on as a whole sort of kind of initial kind of hardcore kind of explosion. I mean, SST was sort of stood apart. It was interesting because everybody was so generic, which I kind of liked. I mean, I liked the fact that there was this real sort of similarity in, in intent and style. Like, you know, this is what you do. You do like this kind of fast thing, you do the skank thing, you do the fast thing, and then you're out of there. This is how you sing it. You know, this is how things sound. This is how you play. This is one sort of like, you know, this real sort of 
kind of like style and everybody locked into. And I sort of like that kind of unified vision. I thought that was just sort of really a really strong point of the, of the music. And SST in a way was sort of always kind of pushing the boundaries without losing the aesthetic. And so by putting records out by Sacred Trust or the Minutemen or, or you know, Meat Puppets, you know, even flag stuff, and uh, I just thought, like, uh, you know, that's really incredible. And the fact that flag was so instrumental and, and like, the scene sort of coming together by touring across America and just playing, in, you know, every kid's plays. Um, I just, you know, for me, it, it, it was obvious that the SST was kind of the vanguard label, you know. And then New Alliance was, was, uh, was like, this kind of, you know, sub label to it which we found out was you guys doing it yeah you told me you wrote us yeah and I sort of sent, I remember like okay if I'm going to send any label anything I'm going to send it to New Alliance because New Alliance was, you guys were putting out these like compilations that had these like really sort of um, this music that was more sort of in a way relative to what I was into at the time with you know like kind of fractured kind of no wave art rock moves and stuff and so you had these complex livers feeble efforts mighty feeble mighty feeble feeble efforts you know which were kind of like really fascinating because there were these little moments of like kind of experimental music from like um, you know from like underground LA so yeah I figured we'd, you know that I thought the label. I really like the aesthetic of the label with a, with a typewriter font that you guys use with the typewriter <laughs> Yeah, because everything was written on this one typewriter. Yeah. Like, you know, I just thought it, it, there was a certain. Uh, Did I write you back? Yeah, you wrote me back. You're like, thanks for the records. I, I know, but we went over there fairly soon, to the point where, you know, even right after I did that, you were you were at one of our first shows there. Yeah. That's well, you were, we played at a. I think our our first show in LA might have been at. Um, the anti -club. At the anti-club? I don't know. That's where I talked to you about... Richard Hell. Yeah. You were there, I think. Or I went to see... You know, I used to go... Actually, I went to see the, the Minutemen before we even played there. Because I, I went out with Kim to visit her folks. And Sonic Youth hadn't been out there yet. But I, I went out there with Kim. And then I noticed that you guys were playing um, at uh, a place in, uh, on a Pico Boulevard called Music Machine. I think. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I and I didn't have any money. And so I called up the music machine, and I said I was a reporter from the New York Times, and I was doing a piece on L.A. clubs, and uh, and I would like to come check out your your club. Is there anybody playing tonight? And yeah, there's, there's a show tonight. We'll we'll be on the list. And I said, yeah, we'd like to feature you on this this article. And it's like uh, I'd like to bring my photographer. Is that okay? So I went, and I, my name was on the list. Who is the photographer? Kim. Kim. She didn't go. <laughs> I don't want to go. I don't want to go to a club. But I went, and it was you guys and some band called Megadeth. It wasn't a metal oh, band. No, it was, it was, it was the joke band of the Plimsolls. Yeah, it was a fake metal band. They were good. And then it was a... Spinal Tap. Yeah, Spinal Tap scene. But they were Megadeth before there was a Megadeth. Right, right. And, uh... <laughs> And then uh, there was you guys, and um, we broke, but we both broke strings on the first note of the first song. Yeah, I was just waiting. I mean, I didn't know anybody. I was just sort of like all these like LA people in this club, and I just remember like kind of walking around, just sort of like whatever. 
you know, and then you guys went on. Um, and then I just remember uh, standing and watching you guys, Eddie Brooks string, and then we had to wait, and then Dezo was, Dezo was heckling you guys. And that, to me, was as, as entertaining as watching you guys and hearing Dezo. Like, you know, can't the fat guy just sort of sing a cappella now? Like Have the fat guy sing one. Like, he kept busting Dezo's. Oh, man, I just saw him in the summer. He's living on your side now. He got married. I saw him with Robo. I hadn't seen Robo in 15 years. Yeah, Dezo's been around for a while now in New York. They were both with uh, Jerry Only in the new Misfits. Yeah. Didn't get to see him. Saw him in Milano, Italy, where we played some festival. Is there a difference between the exact piece of those days and the one now? Yeah some degree, I don't know. I mean, there's no difference in what what I want the label to do, which is sort of just, you know, put out records that I like, I don't know. But, I don't know, just, I, I've always sort of had, uh, wanted it to be a label that really kind of, um, I don't know what I wanted, I just wanted to put out, you know, I, I, I didn't really sort of um, have too much of a control tower aspect to it, like there has to be a certain style here that works, which is like, you know, sometimes that really sort of makes a label stand out, like, you know, when Sub Pop started doing, like, this real sort of series of records that had, you know, this one logo and a certain style, and, you know, the subscription series they did, you know, that was, like, a great move on their part, you know, really sort of brought attention to them. And Branding. But I, I sort of, like, to me, you know, a model for it would really be Discord, New Alliance, those kind of labels were, were sort of had like this kind of, you know, this real in, in basement style kind of numbering system, you know, I don't know. I, I always put like the number symbol on my records, like number, you know, <laughs> 125B, you know. I, I only wanted to go up to 100 and then I was going to go, I was going to go sideways with it instead of, yeah, I was going to go like, um, I went up to 100 then I started doing like one. B, 2B, 3B, and then C, you know, like I was just going <laughs> But I strayed. I went outside of the 100. I went through different things with the label. I would do it myself, and then, uh, you know, as soon as we got super touring in the 80s, it would just sort of like every once in a while I would do something, and, you know, and then I got involved with doing it through forced exposure, you know, Jimmy Johnson's label distribution in, in uh, Boston, and, he did it for a few years, and it would take years just to get shit out, and then things were getting backlogged, because everybody who would ask me to do a record, if I, if I liked it, I was like, yeah, I want to do it, so I had commitments just piled up. I still do. I have commitments piled up from like the last five years. I still need to get these dudes' records out. Backlog. Backlog, man. And uh, I'm sort of catching up. I'm always sort of catching up. I've never, I've never really sort of, uh, you know, gotten balanced. And uh, so, you know, I went through a different thing. But I, I, I met this guy here named Andrew Kesson, who uh, lives here in town. And he's sort of a, this dude who used to play in bands. that used to tour in total band tour action in the 80s. He, uh, he's, he, he's kind of a, um, a design computer, a website design guy. He had a sort of business degree, and he was really into the, what I was doing in the label and I said God, you know, I really like to sort of get it to the point because I get all these dudes sending me records that are like they're kind of like they're a little they're kind of accessible records I mean Marsh. yeah I mean but I kind of I think they're really good 
so um, I said, it'd be nice to get like a, a little um, seed money to sort of put some of these records up with a distribution deal. And so we went and talked to this dude who's a general manager at uh, Universal Records, this guy Andrew Cronfield. And uh, he, uh, he was into it. He said, yeah, you know, let's do it. So last year was the first year, and we just started, we're just getting our legs on this kind of stuff. We put out a few records. But we, we're, we were able to sort of cut the deal where we, we can work doing records through them and also do records without them, you know. Like economy. Econo records. So, you know, we do, we do both things. We do major and minor. Tell me about this solo thing. Solo gig? Uh, solo you, record? You I'm always wanting to do a solo record. Well, you did Psychic Hearts how long ago? Oh, man, I don't Ten. know. Ten? Ninety-something. Yeah. Ten years ago. And that was just, you know, that was, that was real sort of stripped down. I played guitar and bass on it. Steve played drums, and then I had this guy Tim Foley on. People know his $2 guitar, play like Psychic Guitar on it. Did it in two days. Wow. And, uh... Yeah, but yeah, I've always, I mean, ever since then, I've always every time I w get a bunch of songs together, I think like I'm gonna do a solo joint. It gets time for Sonic Youth to start getting busy, and so I generally will sort of take what I think is kind of the most together stuff and put it into the band. And the band always makes it sound. The band does the best things with those songs. You know? Even like these ones I'm writing now for a solo record, I keep thinking, my God, I worked on these with. Steve and Lee and Kim right now, they would be really fucking cool. But I still want to do it. I just want to do it. I just like doing it. the idea of doing a solo record. So I'm working with um, some other dudes. I'm working with this guy, John Maloney, this drummer from Sunburned. Sunburned Hand of the Man. So it's it's going to be different than Psychic Cards. Yeah. Not yeah. two days. I'm working with this bass player called Mark Eyebald, who's been touring with oh, yeah. the last year and a half. After Jim O'Rourke left, we, we uh, hired Mike Rockball to play bass guitar. Um, so it's kind of cool. That's about it, man. We're not doing too much else. I mean, we're going to go out this summer. We're going to do a bunch of gigs where we play Daydream Nation all the way through. Oh, wow. That'll be kind of fun. Yeah. We're just going to do this gig, like Daydream Nation gig, where we just come out and we play the entire double album and you know, get the hell out of there. I think we're going to try it. Are you going to do for your solo thing song by song? Or are you going to do a two day? I got to do it in a, in a like a week, I think. I have a block of time up coming up in April. I'm going to do it in, or in March. And then uh, also it'll be out later in the year, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I want to put it out in the fall. Wow. And, and Sonic Youth after summer? Uh, we'll probably in the fall. We'll probably like start writing, recording some new shit. But we don't have. We're not. Um, we're we're not on Geffen Records anymore, so... Oh, really. when that happened? The last album was the end of the contract. Yeah, dude. okay. And then we uh, did this record called The Destroyed Room, which was a collection of, like, weirdo B-sides and stuff. That was also something that was in our track. We might do one more record with them, but that's just sort of like a, a collection. But as far as record new stuff, it's going to be on... New Alliance. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> well, remember the MSR series? Are you still going to do those? SYR, yeah. We got some SYRs coming out. We're doing some of those. Those are really interesting. We're doing those now, and 
Steve came up with this great idea for the next couple of ones that we're doing is that all the money that uh, proceeds from those records that we're going to use is to put into these food programs that sort of feed um, displaced Iraq civilians. You know, he had this idea, it's like, you know, instead of sending over fucking, fucking guns and fucking dudes blowing shit up, why don't we send some food over there for people who fucking need it? So we're going to do that. That was a good idea, I thought. Yeah. So. Salute. Salute to Shelly on that one. <coughs> yeah, right, Steve. And, um, he's, he's been doing $2 guitar because Tom told me he played bass for him in Paris. Yeah. Steve just wants to he wants to jam, dude. You should you should have him play with you. He's Dude on likes the to other play. Side. That's all there is to it. <laughs> no, I'm gonna, I saw you guys in December. You played after the Stooges. He was smoking. Who was? Steve Shelley. Man. Smoking? Yeah. yeah. Killer drummer, man. I've never seen him play. So I mean, I've always liked him, but man, that really wowed me. He's the real deal. In fact, you guys, the whole band was so great. Well, I can't wait to see the, the daydream thing. Are you going to play it in order? Yeah. What are you doing for Providence? <laughs> never did that before. I mean, nobody, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> we used to do that. I mean, not with daydream, but I think um, after in the in the nineties. Uh, when we were ha when we had no bass and Kim decided to play third guitar and I was like okay you know and all the low end was like on the kick drum for for like two years Slater Kitty and those tours were you know those tours were really strange because we were doing records like a thousand leaves and and uh, washing machine yeah. like those records specifically and we'd write them we would record them. And then we would go on tour, and we would just play those records, you know, in their entirety. And they would be enough to fill a whole set. And then, you know, the, I thought, I, I kind of I, I kind of was into it in a way. It's like, will you go see Sonic Youth, and the only thing you're going to hear is something you've never heard before. That's how ELP was when I saw him as a teenager. ELP? album, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Daydream... Uh, well, we're, we're kind of like a ELP double album, though. No, huh? That's a double album. That's going to be a long set. That's going to be a long fucking set. Well, you know, maybe side four will be the encore. If we got an encore, you get side four. Are you going to do Providence? Hell yeah, man. <laughs> we should have you come with us. Yeah. Like, also, the light will come on. It'll be you sitting, like, in this kind of makeshift van <laughs> seat, you know, like. Stage set. Find your shit. Lay off the motor. Yeah, what was... You were hanging around that garbage can. What you left him on that garbage can. Oh, that phone booth or something. What was the scene? Talking to you in this punk phone booth. <laughs> well, because remember you guys would throw the sock out the Elridge window? <laughs> yeah. You'd have to call on the punk phone. <laughs> what was the seed that germinated in your head about that, to do that? About oh, Providence? Yeah. Because I, I, you, you were on like the... You left that message on my answering machine tape. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I, <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> you know, I was with you guys, and we were like, we were like, we blew a little mota, and then like we went to the music store, and like, I actually, you know, the band gave me a little money, like forty dollars to buy some stuff. You know, we didn't have any, we didn't have much 
we didn't have much cash. You know, the dinero was slight, oh, and yeah. uh, and so I was like, oh, I know. And then I left it. We were hanging out before you guys left up near uh, Times Square somewhere, and then. And then uh, I realized I didn't have the bag anymore. And I was like, oh, man, maybe I left it in the van or... But it wasn't in the van. And you were like, yeah, you left it on the near the pump phone booth. No, what happened was the next day we're playing Providence and I realized that when I asked you to dump some trash, oh, yeah, you had the right. bag in your arm and you dumped everything into <laughs> some trash. I once sort of bought like um, some, some stuff at a music store. And it was a, real, a lot of stuff, and it was really expensive, and it was in this bag, and I was waiting for a bus, and then uh, I got home, and then I realized I didn't have it anymore, and I realized I, I think it was at the bus stop, like I left it at the bus stop, right? And this was like about 12 hours later, and then I, uh, I hoofed it all the way back to the bus stop, and the bag was just sort of like sitting there, <laughs> yeah. like trash, you know, like in the middle of New York. But what was... What made you want to make a song out of that? Um, and then a video. <laughs> yeah, because to me it's like, I, you know, one thing about, I always thought what I wanted to do in, in Sonic Youth was sort of like really kind of um, put forth the idea that a song can be whatever you make it. You know? And it's sort of like that whole dictum that is like on those stickers with D. Boone where it says punk rock is whatever we, we wanted it to be, you know. To me, it's like, that was like punk rock. That was like, you know, a song can be whatever you make it, and if it sort of has a certain vibe that you that you feels right. And that's how I got, and uh, later on when I started getting into like the whole genre of improvised music, I was like, well, you know, this is, these are people who are doing composition, and they're like, it's really spontaneous composition, you know, and these are, these are these as as much value as as a composed song. Uh, so I don't know. I, I I just sort of thought like Providence really worked because I thought like well, okay, your answering machine message was like that you were the vocalist. You were like the lead vocalist on this song. This is your recitation, you know. And then we in this like the, 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 the increased tape hiss that we brought out from the tape was was an element of music that would go with it. And then we actually sort of added. Some piano to it right yeah yeah so i mean it's like we just created this this piece of music that i thought was like this song and we actually i wanted at the time you know the record was on blast first and i tried to get the label who was paul smith i wanted to release it as a we a seven inch off the record and i was like i want providence to be a seven inch you know and i thought that i wanted to take it even further where it would be sort of a, a like a sort of like a reggae 7-inch with a big hole and it's just sort of like, you know, um, this, this is the 7-inch from the record. It's Providence. And, uh, of course, they didn't get, they couldn't they couldn't execute that idea at all in a way that was right. So they made this kind of promo little hole 7-inch with, you know, it's like, no, 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 no. It's like, you didn't get it, dudes. Um, the aesthetic's anyway. so hard to get over to Square Jones sometimes. And then we made a video. Yeah, we made a video for it. Because <laughs> these guys had some video. I mean, we were doing some stuff with these British guys who were doing some stuff at the time. And it was like, you know, what songs off the record should we do some, do a video for? And I was like, well, Providence. It's a 
That's a good vid, too. I get asked about that, too, so many times. <laughs> There's... Find your shit. I have people yelling at to me at gigs sometimes. There's... Find your shit! Yeah, you know. It's like being in Japan, you know, where nobody says anything after they clap. It's just dead silence. It could be like one American dude in the audience. Hey, what do you think of these people? <laughs> hey, they don't understand what you're saying, you know. I hate that. Some gaijin in the audience. Trying to sort of bond with you because you both speak English. And nobody else knows. <laughs> Hey, why don't you tell them about, uh, you know, the one, the one lone voice of some dude who's there in town. What's your favorite song right at this moment? My favorite song right at this moment? I th right, my favorite song right at this moment? Um, my favorite song is... Um, uh, City Slime by Sonic's Rendezvous Band. Did you get that CD I said? Thanks for that CD, it's great. Yeah, I've been playing that jammer. <laughs> true? Yeah, I play it in the kitchen. It's good. I love that stuff. Okinawa, man. <laughs> Radical Okinawa music. Okay, Thurs. All right, man. It's the end of the first hour of the February 14, 2007 edition of the Watt from Pedro show. Hold tight for hour two. February 14, 2007. It's the second hour of the Watt from Pedro show. I uh, see we just had Thurston Spiel there the first hour. I saw fit to have us uh, listen to a live prac thing of theirs. Sonic Youth getting it tuned together. I don't know if this ever became a real one. But whatever, it's interesting. As is uh, talking with Thirst. I've known him so many years now, and every time is an uh, enlightenment time for what? When I uh, sit in his classroom, which means there's rap, you know, spiel. Uh, people like him, Nels, Rim Pettibone. I'm a lucky guy, man. <laughs> Righteous cats come into my world and very generous with me. And, uh, yeah, not a lot of spiel this show because, uh, yeah, you got Brother Matt around and you probably can imagine I could get a one way conversation going pretty easy. But, <laughs> reality of it is uh, a lot of times it's uh, well it's going on but it's more internal and not so uh, open there with the mic but uh, enough blather uh, here's Sonic Youth
Okay, now this is Chinese, so forgive me for probably fucking up the pronunciation, but uh, that tune was Queen Mei Zuma by Wu Fei. And before that, we had Dream Finger by Sonic Youth. Um, yeah, some longish tunes, huh? Just shows you all over the world you can wail it out. The Min Min was uh, one extreme of doing things. Uh, other folks like to unravel things, maybe not compact it so much. We use a lot of shorthand, just the way it is in Pedro, you know, we like to breathe. <laughs> My next opera is all a bunch of little tunes with Tom and Raoul, Missing Man. And uh, I got up to some kind of longish tunes with the last opera, the um, middle stand sickness thing. But um, yeah, it was a trip. I just thought, you know, you know that the aphorism, you know, live in the moment. Well, sickness, man, that's all you got is the moment. So like another aphorism. You've probably heard, be careful for what you wish for. Not the sickness, but <laughs> living in the moment. Although that is a great thought. It's probably uh, Buddha came up with it first, huh? Uh, yeah, I got some music here from uh, some San Diego cats. Uh, Truckee Brothers, bought from Pedro Show.
We started that chunk of music out with uh, Truckee Brothers. Purple Waves of Grain. No. Purple. <laughs> Sorry. Purple Waves of Gain. It's a, maybe a play on that uh, line in the, that song. Is that amber waves of grain? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, they're uh, great cats. I met them in London. I was on tour with um, Paul and Raul, second men. Yeah. Uh, here's some guys I met from the same tour. Next, uh, Irish band called a stale. With uh, <laughs> now this ain't me fucking up the pronunciation. This is the way they spelled it. Okay. Uraka discipline. <laughs> you know, shit, I do. <clears throat> but I'm trying to get it together. Okay. And um, from their new album. Uh, yeah, the organ player makes these intense uh, paintings. Uh, always a lot of blood and uh, uh, violent. Maybe. Maybe it's a metaphor, maybe. But, uh, yeah, I asked the drummy, uh, Bushy, uh, hey, what about some flannel paintings? <laughs> uh, uh, and then uh, we played, uh, we, me, myself, and I, played Love is Laughter. Uh, band, uh, God, where... It was a cat named Sam. I met him through uh, Jay Maskus when the uh, was touring with Jay Maskus in the Fog, 2000. And they were in Seattle then. Him and a cat named Zach. It was a two-man band. And they were great, man. Very nice people. And, uh, yeah, I liked the tunes. And that, that was called On the Run. Um, tomorrow I'm going to record... Long Beach, lady named Vicki Calhoun. She asked me uh, to write her a tune. Here we go. So, <laughs> another pants shitter situation for what? Uh, and then Sunday I record again uh, with uh, Nels, Petra, Money Mark, Chad Smith. We're doing a Maybe I talked about this last show, but with Brother Matt. Uh, song Richard Meltzer uh, did the words for. Richard Meltzer, a huge hero for me. Uh, he just wrote me, told me he's finishing a novel. I can't wait to read it. I love his writing. Everybody should read a horror just like the rest. It's the best if you want to know about Shildom and the industry. And just good writing. And oh, the humanity. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to put it in words. That, that's why Richard's a writer, you know. He's a, he can slang the words. In fact, I've got a project with him called Spielgusher, where he recorded me a bunch of little spiels and put music behind it. What an honor. Righteous. Uh, last thing me, D. Boone, Georgie were going to do was record with Richard. He wrote his ten songs. And some of those uh, are part of this batch. 
Uh, I also go to San Francisco and play with Kira you know, for a dose gig. We had practice today. And, man, dose songs are hard for what? But it's good. Hard is good for what, okay? People, uh, sometimes uh, people read my diaries and they uh, tell me uh, I'm too hard on Man, don't worry. Okay, a little hand-wringing's good if it's gonna make you act on, uh, well, I'm speaking of myself, for myself, but if I can, you know, try and get it together, then it's okay. So if I wring my hands in public a little bit there, you know, with them diaries, I'm trying to practice writing even, you know? I'm a stumble bum motherfucker. <laughs> Not a way. You know, I, I gotta try, I gotta try. Yeah, very grateful for uh, nicest people do give me. I, I, it's out of concern, probably, people say that, but it's okay, you know, uh, what do you call it, therapy. You know what I'm reading? If you want to read a real crazy go-off thing, and it doesn't matter whether you agree or not, you can't even tell if he did, but this guy, Soren Kierkegaard, read Fear and Trembling. That is a whack fucking tome. It's only 152 pages, but... It, <laughs> Man, that's it's a roller coaster. <laughs> I re what I'm doing is uh, a lot nowadays is rereading stuff I read in my twenties, and teens even late teens, because it's different. I mean, I, obviously the words stay the same. I changed, and uh, it's a trip to go back. Just because you read something, probably like listening to something, or seeing a painting or a play. Uh, it ain't done. Go back. I mean, that's what I have to do, uh, that I'm into doing. It's, it's a trip, man. It's like you already did s some work already, so n none of it was wasted. Nothing was wasted. Any investment in the arts, you know, if it's a real deal, I think it means something, man. And, uh, Somehow, some way, it's hard to get a handle on that even, you know, but all the collisions and the tangent and connects and all that, it's just too big to reduce it down to, you know, whatever pablum seems gummable. Go for the big chomps. Savor. <laughs> Okay, uh, yeah, here's Saccharine Trust, some old friends from Wilmington. No kinder soul did I ever know or would have sought to trouble had I somewhere else to go. Your charity, charity to me. You are blessed with charity. Trustful friend. When I'm in need again. Self-sufficient working mentor.
as sweet as a word, please. No kind of soul did I ever know would have sought the trouble and I somewhere else to go. Your charity, charity to me. You are blessed with charity. Trustful friend, when I'm in need again. Self-sufficient, working mentor. As sweet as a word, please. The streets are rugged. It's for last. Hey, didn't I ever teach you not to hold grudges? Cause, cause remember. Told you. No. Come on, man. I was on a different plateau. You're just too decent. You would never know. I was on a different plateau. It's like this. Some bad men from down south were trying to take me out. What they say I owe them And I know you're more forgiven Hey, I was on a different plateau You would never understand It's like this, you always said yes You just give and give, you never ask And would you have caught on any other way Man, these streets are for rodents I even owe them Hey, like I said I was on a different plateau, man, when I stole your collectibles. Hey, I'll pay you back, my friend, before you stop aging. Yeah, you'll never trust me the same. I know, but you will trust me again.
Foster regarding the nature of conceptual reality. Psychologically speaking, the human mind or brain or whatever is almost incapable of distinguishing between the real and the vividly imagined experience, sound and film, music and radio. Even these manipulated experiences are received more or less directly and uninterpreted by the mind. They are cataloged and recorded and either acted upon directly or stored in the memory or both. Now, this process, unless we pay it tremendous attention, begins to separate us from the reality of the now. Am I being clear? For we must allow the reality of the now to just happen as it happens. Observe and act with clarity. For where there is clarity, there is no choice. And where there is choice, there is misery. But then, why should I speak? Since I know nothing. We were speaking of belief. Beliefs and conditioning. All belief possibly could be said to be the result of some conditioning. Thus, the study of history is simply the study of one system of beliefs deposing another, and so on and so on and so on. A psychologically tested belief of our time is that the central nervous system, which feeds its impulses directly to the brain, the conscious and subconscious, is unable to discern between the real and the vividly imagined experience. If there is a difference, and most of us believe there is, am I being clear? For to examine these concepts requires tremendous energy and discipline. To allow the unknown to occur and to occur requires clarity. And where there is clarity, there is no choice. And where there is choice, there is misery. But then why should anyone listen to me? Or should I speak? Since I know nothing.
key is now. This is the moment in which we can do.
Saccharine Trust started us off there with Reggie's Plateau. Then it was Buddha Machine by Howard Amb. And then Lioness by The Wagon. That's the end of the second hour of the February 14, 2007 edition of the Watt from Pedro show. Hang tight for hour three. February 14, 2007. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro show. And here's part five of Jack Flanders in the Ghost Islands. I was talking to Fast Freddy. He told me that Bunny had said something about hearing singing out there beyond the harbor. Oh, great. You think that's where she's gone? Huh, who knows? Well, if the reason Claudine wanted to come here has got to do with those ghost islands, then I think we need her help. Look, Claudine won't tell me anything. You know, I wish I knew what the singing sounded like. <laughs> Well, if you hear it, you'll know. If we could recreate it and put speakers out there, then maybe Skinny might think she's being called. And, and then she'd go out and then... <laughs> oh, man, you are bad. Does Claudine know how bad you are? When it comes to Dominique, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like Dominique. She's a free spirit. A little nutty, but life's never boring around her. <laughs> yeah, don't remind me. So... What are we going to do about Bunny? Well, pray she's okay. Pray that the islands will reappear. <laughs> Seems to me there's a lot of coming and going, and we're just sitting and watching. Watching and waiting and ready to go, right? I think we need to find something to do in the meantime. Well, if Dominique is going to be traveling with us, well, let's find out if she can swim. What are you going to do? Push her off the dock? Oh, Mojo, I'm shocked. Oh, yeah? I'm shocked that you can actually read my mind. <laughs> oh, man, you're too much. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Ah, no, you're not. <laughs> Claudine? Yes, Jack? You know, I think it's time we talk about what we're doing here. Do you mean what I'm doing here? Oh, no, no, no. I I'm not questioning your mission, whatever that is. But I am questioning your lack of concern over Bunny's disappearance. I don't think you need to worry. We're responsible for her. She's a teenager. And teenagers are notoriously irresponsible. Do you think this is true of Bunny? Well, you know her father. Now, if anything happens... Jack, I've... no, stop this now. But you are so blasé about it. I feel she is safe. You mean being looked after by your, your fuzzy friends, whatever they are? Talk to Dominique. Dominique? She makes you smile. Claudine, there are times you can be so piddles. <laughs> see? Are you not smiling? I am not. Ah, I see a thin little smile. What you are seeing is an upside-down frown. Jack, don't worry. Let's be happy. Okay? Okay. Good. So, Bunny is all right? <laughs> I don't know. Cet homme est impossible. Do what you want. I don't care. I give up. Oh, tant pis alors. I have talked to Claudine. She doesn't know where Bunny has gone, but she feels Bunny is safe. I know. She told me. Hmm. Bunny's been gone off a lot by herself. She is a young woman. Young women do things you men can never understand. Well, that's for sure. And you, Jack, 
You had better watch yourself. What have I done now? You've done nothing. What? Claudine needs your support. But are you giving support? Now, wait a minute. Don't you know what Claudine is doing is very difficult for her? Do you actually know what she's doing? No, but obviously it is not easy. Dominique's got a point. It's not easy to help someone who doesn't want Did your I help. Did I say help? No, I said support. You don't know the difference? Hey, hey, cool it. Okay? Yeah. Besides, we weren't being serious. Oh, no? Let's go get a beer. You're buying? Yeah. Fatten you up. How about the pelican's pelt? Good. Come on. Get up. Let's go. Hop, Jack. Hop. Oh, God. <laughs> we found Rose sitting alone at the pelican's pouch. I had a few more questions to ask her. The appearance of the islands was seen as a blessing. Why? Well, they seemed to set things in balance. Were things out of balance? Are they ever in balance? But how did their presence bestow a blessing? Jack, it's like an old friend. When they come to visit you, is that not a blessing? <laughs> and the islands may absorb the negative energies, too. So what is happening? They are weakening. They are disappearing? Only one island has appeared this year, and I haven't seen the others. What is causing this? Is it the weather, the warming, the pollution, the craziness? Maybe just too much negativity in this world. Claudine knows. You think so? I think that's what she does. Does what? Troubleshoot. What do you mean by troubleshoot? She sees trouble, she shoots it? Claudine can see the other side. What other side are you talking about? The other side of reality. So this is why you have come here? I guess so. But aren't you the captain? Yes, I am. <laughs> and you don't know? Well, why is that funny? I have no idea. Rose, what can you tell us about the fuzzy ones? <laughs> is that what you call them? It was Bunny who came up with that. Oh, did you find Bunny? Uh, no, she's still missing. Who are the fuzzies? Oh, they inhabit the island. Yeah, but, but who are they really? Uh, they're not like us. Are they human? They are, but not like we are. You've seen them? I have. At their brightest, they are like a luminous cocoon, but that is rare. And if you see them here, they are, as you say, like a faint floating oval. I was attacked by one. No. Mm. Oh, man, that was in a dream you had. I don't care. They were carrying me away. Maybe they were planning a fuzzy barbecue. That is not funny. <laughs> Rose, what do the fuzzies do? Well, there are those who believe that they are here to bless us. And that's why in the village you've seen the little altars and offerings. Mm. How do they bless you? With barbecue sauce. I said that was not funny. <laughs> well, how do any gods help humans? They do it by removing negative energies and replacing it with positive energies. Who knows? Or they may just bless. Yes, they may just bless. Why do they do this? No one knows. But all of this is changing, and the islands are vanishing. And as I told Jack before, this year only one island has appeared. What do you think is happening? I don't know. Does that mean there's fewer fuzzies walking around? Yes, and this may be the last year they'll appear. That was part five of Jack Flanders and the Ghost Islands. Oh, Jack. <laughs> Going through all the trips as we follow him.
Oh man. Years now, huh? Maybe, yeah, more than 30, 35 maybe. Still trying to figure it out, like me. He's got a better handle on him than I do, though. Anyway, coming up next now is a new thing for the Watt from Pedro show. You know, a lot of stuff you hear is what either cats give me or stuff from my old collection or just things I stumble onto. And here's a way uh, to get out of my world. I mean, I have a lot of help from people like Brother Matt and his wide scope and, as you could tell, with Thurston and his deep knowledge when I have guests on. But uh, last week, um, a colleague of mine in England, London specifically, uh, K.R. Shida, she um, made 42 minutes worth of, uh, yeah, radio segment. That's pretty <laughs> intense, pretty amazing. And so, uh, yeah, check it out. K.R. in England. This is Kauri from the Go Team. Thanks for letting me be in the part of What from Pedro show. Uh, Mike Watt says Pedro, but we say Pedro in England. Hope you understand my Japanese and English accent. Uh, let me introduce myself first in case you don't know me. But I think a lot of people don't know me anyway. I'm from Japan and living in London for six years now. And I play mainly guitar and bits and pieces in a band called The Go Team in England. And hopefully some of you guys saw us playing somewhere in the world because we've been on tour all over the world last year. And I met Mike Watt, Mr. Mike Watt, when we played at the same festival in a summer festival. And he's cool dude, as you know, and he, we got on well and he asked me to do that. And I'm so glad to be able to do this, but this is a fast radio show for me, so it's, I'm quite nervous, uh, but I'm going to play whatever I want to play, that's Mr. Mike Watt told me that, so enjoy! First track I play is a Go Team Junior Kickstart.
it was a gold theme, Junior Kickstart. And next one I want to play is The Head Coaties. This is a project of the guy called、uh, Billy Childish. He's a proper English guy with a moustache, and he's been doing a lot of projects like last 20 years. Then, this is one of his projects, quite old project, and four girls singing in front, and one lady from this The Head Coaties, name called Holly. She, she's been producing the White Stripes album recently. Then she got famous with it, but she was in this band, and I love this band. This is main influence for my music, and I'm so glad I found this record in my hometown. And this song called Kara Lin. One. This is actually my friend, band called Panic Smile. They are from south of Japan, next to my hometown. And I think I was 15 or 16 years old. I just started the guitar to play the guitar. Then I was into Guns N' Roses and stuff like、um, wrong music. I can't say wrong, nothing wrong with it. 
but just、um, mainstream kids got mainstream like like Guns and Roses like at the time hard rock. So and they came down to play in my hometown. I was there. I was shocked. Like their like experimental noise band, and that was the first time to see experimental band in my life ever. So I was so excited about it, and I got into them and became a friends of them. And they were really nice to me, and they told me what is the real music, that kind of stuff. Then they told me a lot of cool stuff. So they saved me from Guns N' Roses. I'm glad I met them. So this band called Panic Smile and song called M M M. Ma ma ma. Was panic smile, M M M. That's great. And next one is a band called Butter O Eight. This is quite old project. And the girls from Chibomato, Miho Hattori and Yuka Honda, they are into in this band. And I picked up this CD in my hometown, like 1996. Then. I was like, "Wow, how cool is that?" I re- already loved the Chibomato at that time, and I was dreaming to go to England to play music. And Chibomato were already in New York and playing and releasing records. So Chibomato inspired me so much to come over to England and play music. Thank you very much, Chibomato. I love you guys. This song called "Dick Serious."
was Butter or Eight, Dick Serious. Our next one is a band called Kuozi in English pronunciation, Japanese pronunciation, Kuoshi. And American, someone told me that but forgot it. And Q U A S I, Kuozi. And song called I Never Wanna See You Again.
was cozy. I never want to see again. And next one is from Domino Record, the band called Fortet, song called A Joy. That was a、uh, hard. And next one is、uh, the guy called Robot. I am Robot and Proud. Song called Grey Stays. Relax.
I am robot and proud gray stays and next one is I play is a CD but listen to this three money let's save our money and buy a new car next year the drinks in this vending machine each cost 75 cents nowadays few people pick up a penny if they see one on the street yeah I pick up the penny on the street <laughs> and this is a English lesson CD. I think someone left it in my flat. So it's not mine, but I can make it as a Japanese lesson, I thought. It's not even lesson, just、uh, hear the sound. I follow that in Japanese. Okay? 40. Unusual. Indian food is made with many unusual ingredients. インド料理はたくさんの珍しい食材から作られています工場から変な匂いがしてましたはいつも変なネクタイばっかりしてる Mr. Gibbons is a rather odd old man. ギビンズさんは超変なおっさん。Okay, that's it. How was it? And I thought, what, what kind of English lesson was that? Like, old, old man. It's like pretty funny to me. Yeah, it was. And next, this is a scientist from Jamaica, Dove from Ghetto. That's a CD. And a song called Young Lover.
that's nice dub scientist and thanks for listening for my radio show and this is a main thing main music i wanted to play on this show and i'm really into japanese traditional music at the moment but there is a place called okinawa in japan southeast island of japan and really small but they have their own culture and own instruments and they have a shamisen but it's made by snakeskin it's different than normal japanese shamisen shamisen is japanese banjo and they have own music as well it's mixed with a japanese and bit of indian and bit of asia stuff like that and really beautiful and i'm really in love with it and i've got the shamisen okinawa shamisen called sanshin i bought it when i was in japan then it sounds wicked it's lovely i love it and i'm gonna play these two songs from okinawa um one of them first one Lankbush, second one kiteku and artist is minoru kinjo Tang nugi usa suri 
was uh, Okinawa traditional music and I hope I can play like them very soon and I'm appreciate your any feedback like complain or anything so I've got the myspace which is myspace.com kaori505 k-a-o-r-i 505 so if you can give me email or something, uh, I appreciate anything. Thank you very much. So, thanks so much again, and see you very soon. Bye. Sakita ni ya na 
was Kaori in England. Uh, wow. You know, in May it'll be six years for the Watt from Pedro show. And two years before that, I did a show at KBLT, that pirate station up Silver Lake. So eight years, and I still am trying very much to get together. <laughs> it's very obvious uh, he's head and shoulders over my weak-ass shit. So I look to her for inspiration. Try harder. Um, she was saying, you know, you have any thoughts, any feedback? Um, writer at uh, my waste of space place um, myspace.com slash kaori505 k-a-o-r-i 505 and uh, yeah tell her what you think I thought it was righteous much respect uh, here's some Kyoko
Tonic Wedding Suit by Position Normal, and in front of that was The Person I Meet by Kyoko. Uh, happy Valentine's Day, February 14, 2007 edition Watt from Pedro Show. Coming to the end there. Um, without Brother Matt by myself and my Pedro pad. But uh, very grateful for assistance with that spiel with Thurston and then uh, the KR in England segment. And plus all the bands, all the folks making music that I find interesting and hopefully some of you cats out there do too. Um, next week with Brother Matt again. And I got a lot of music coming up. I always got a lot of music coming up, huh? I'm very lucky. Why does a lucky man? You sure as hell got that right. Damn straight. Keep your powder dry.